0: Wow, thank you, Tangina. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22 while you're doing that. Hadn't the music been great this morning? Thank you to Tangina and Cindy. Cindy was gone a couple of weeks on a family vacation, so she came back today to remind us of how much we appreciate Cindy. So, great job. Thank you. Matthew chapter 22, the title of the message is, Questions with a Purpose. And you're going to see a series of questions that are asked of Jesus with one intention. They're trying to trick Him or trap Him. But then Jesus asked some questions. In fact, Jesus was a master of hearing a question and asking a question in return. Have you ever been asked a question that was not answerable? Ladies, I'm sorry, but men have figured out the answer to every question. If your kid comes and asks you a question, men, what's the answer? Go ask your mother. Right? Have you all figured that out, ladies? Have you all ever, have ladies ever done that? Have you ever said, ask your husband? I mean, ask your, ask your husband. You're old enough. Go ask your husband. No, ask your father. I remember as a kid, the big question that we had in youth group, we tried to stump our youth minister was, can God make a rock so big he can't move it? There's not an answer to that, because if you say, well, no, he can't, then you're saying, well, he's not powerful enough to make a rock so big. And if you say, yes, he can, then you're saying he's not powerful enough to, to move it. It's a stupid question. i got some other ones. Why doesn't Tarzan have a beard when he lives in the jungle without a razor? Why do we press harder on a remote control when we know the batteries are bad? Why do banks charge a fee on insufficient funds when they know there isn't enough money? Why do kamikaze pilots wear helmets? Why does someone believe you when they say there are four billion stars, but check when you say the paint is wet? Whose idea was it to put an S in the word lisp? Why is it that people say they slept like a baby when babies wake up every two hours? How is it that we put a man on the moon before we figured out it would be a good idea to put wheels on luggage? Why, I like Why do people pay to go up in tall buildings and then put money in binoculars to look at things on the ground? <laughs> if electricity comes from electrons, does morality come from morons? Why do the alphabet song and Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star have the same tune? Some of you are going to ponder that one the rest of the day. All right, quit singing it and listen to the next one. On the same thing, do illiterate people get the full effect of alphabet, of alphabet soup? <laughs> Does pushing the elevator button more than once make it arrive faster? All right, be honest. How many of you have gone up and you saw the person in front of you push the elevator button, but you still feel compelled, i got to push it too? Yeah. <laughs> I've done that. Maybe it didn't connect. I know the light's lit, but maybe something. Maybe my, I've got the magic thinker. Well, Jesus has asked some more pressing questions than that. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians had thought they'd come up with some questions that he couldn't answer. And when he did answer, they thought, no matter what he answers, we've got him. Let me read the focus passage, and then I'm going to give you some context. But starting in verse 34 of chapter 22 of Matthew. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on ask him another question. I've got to give you some context. And to do that, I want you to understand who these three groups of people are. So first thing is, let me define some terms. The Pharisees. The Pharisees were the largest sect in Jerusalem. They were separatists. They were strict observers of the Old Testament law. They ascribed near equal weight to their traditions and the Old Testament law. They didn't like Rome at all. They were very unfavorable to Rome. The Sadducees, smaller sect, but very wealthy, very powerful. They did not agree with much that the Pharisees believed. So whatever the Pharisees believed, the Sadducees were kind of the flip side of the coin. They were the smallest of the Jewish sects, but the high priest and the chief priest typically came from among The Sadducees, they really only focused on the first five books of the Bible, the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the writings of Moses. And then the Herodians, they were followers of Herod. Some of them were Jews, but you didn't really have to be a Jew to be a Herodian. Herod the Great was raised as a Jew, although he was not born one. But they were supported by Rome. In fact, they were granted favors by Rome. And one of the favors they were granted was they had a lot of power and influence over israel so those are the three groups and they did not get along with each other so you got the pharisees who detest rome you got the sadducees who tolerated rome you got the herodians who support the roman government the one in charge of their area so to give you a little context jesus is teaching in the temple In fact, a little more context on palm sunday jesus enters into jerusalem a couple of days later, depending on who, what scholar you listen to, believe that either on Tuesday or Wednesday of that same week, Jesus is teaching in the temple. And that's where the Pharisees, the Herodians, and then the Sadducees come to ask Him these questions. And their full intention. They've gotten in a back room somewhere and said, we have got to get rid of Jesus. We have got to put Him out of our misery, so to speak. And they didn't just want to cast Him out. They're to the point now of... We want to kill him. So they're trying to trip him up with a question that would be worthy of the death penalty. So they've sat around, come up with some questions, and they've come to ask Jesus. The first group that comes to him are the Pharisees and the Herodians. But the Pharisees don't even come to him. They send some of their followers, hoping that perhaps Jesus would not recognize them. Because to be a Pharisee meant you would have had on this long robe, and you would have had this thing called a phylactery, which is a box, either on your forehead or on your left arm that had scripture in it, so it's a dead giveaway. So they kind of sent the undercover squad in, and that's some of their followers, but they also sent with them the Herodians. And the reason is, because depending on how Jesus answers this question, they've either tripped him up on the Old Testament law, or they tripped him up on the law of Rome, and if the Herodians go before Herod, and then ultimately to Pilate and the Roman authorities, their words are going to carry more weight. So these two people don't even like each other, but they're they're united in their hatred of Jesus. And so they come and ask Him a question, trying to entangle Him or ensnare Him. So they ask Him this question. Is it lawful for us to pay the poll tax? Now, there are a lot of taxes, a lot of tax collectors in ancient Jerusalem and in ancient Israel. The the poll tax was one that you basically, they called it a head tax. It was that everybody had to be counted. It was the census tax. It's why Jesus was born in Bethlehem because his father Joseph, his mom Mary, have to go to to Bethlehem to be counted so they can pay this tax. So they come up and they say, is it lawful for us to pay the poll tax? Jesus perceives what they're up to. In fact, the Word says He perceives their malice. He knows they're trying to trick Him. So He asked them a question. He said, well, whose likeness is on the coin? One of them pulls out a coin. don't know if he had a pocket or what, but he pulled out one of these coins. And Jesus says, whose likeness is on there? Th- this is where the phrase, show me the money, came from apparently. And so they show him the money, and whose head's on there? It's Caesar's. And there would probably be an inscription on the back of it that would be some kind of quote or saying from Caesar. And so they're, they're thinking, if Jesus says, don't pay the poll tax, then they've got him disobeying the Roman government. If he says, pay the poll tax, then now they've got him going against the religious people. But Jesus asked them a question. Well, whose image is on there? They say, well, it's Caesar's. They hold out for him a denarius, which was one day's wage. We have talked about it earlier in Matthew, but typically they were copper. This would have been silver or gold because it was minted exclusively for Caesar and by Caesar. He's the only one that could mint... In gold or silver, and so they had to have one of these. Now think about it. These Pharisees who hated Caesar and didn't want to pay this poll tax, they had already accepted the fact that we're going to keep his money, though. And so when Jesus says, show me the image, then here's his answer. Well, if Caesar's picture's on there, then render under Caesar what is Caesar's. That belongs to Caesar. Render under Caesar what is Caesar. But then he says, render under God what is God's. So I want you to think about that a minute. That coin belonged to Caesar, but all it was was money because it bore his image. But whose image did the very people that were asking him this question bear? They bore the image of God. They were created how? In the image of God. So Jesus has turned the question back on them to say, okay, give the money back to Caesar. But have you given yourselves to God? Have you given your allegiance, your dedication, everything you are, every fiber of your being, have you given that to God? The answer, of course, would have been no, but they didn't answer the question. In fact, it just says they were amazed. I get the picture that they come, they come with this real arrogant attitude. We're going to ask him a question. We got him. Then he, he answers the question. They're just going, well, that's not fair. He didn't answer the question the way we expected him to. So then the Sadducees give it a try, and they question Jesus. Here's something you need to know about the Sadducees. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the afterlife. So I guess if you're a Sadducee, you really were sad, you see, because basically you lived your whole life thinking this is as good as it gets. And so if you live your life thinking this is as good as it gets, then you better really enjoy life because there's nothing after it. Now, the Pharisees believed in afterlife, Sadducees didn't. But the question they posed him is, they make up this question about, okay, let's say this woman is married to this man, and he dies. She had not had any children. Well, the Old Testament law was that she's supposed to marry a relative, his brother perhaps, to have children to carry on his name in the family name. They said, well, what happens if she's done that seven times? And she gets to heaven, whose wife is she going to be? They thought, man, we've got him here. Now, the Sadducees are asking a question based on a premise they don't even believe. They don't believe there is a heaven. They don't believe that you're going to, you know, go there, that there's some kind of afterlife. And Jesus basically says, you don't get it. You don't understand Scripture. And he quotes, he actually quotes Scripture from the Pentateuch, those five books that they did believe, to answer their question. And it says they were astonished. So we got the Pharisees, disciples of the Pharisees, and the Herodians over here going, and then we got the Sadducees over here. They're astonished. Literally means to strike out of their wits. They're just going, what are we going to do now? So then we get to the last question. And the last question comes for the Pharisees themselves. And it says, when they heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. The word silence here literally means to muzzle, it means to put something over their mouth so they couldn't speak. Now, how are the Pharisees going to feel about that? They're pretty jacked. They're delighted in the fact that the Sadducees have been quieted. Their enemies have been shut up. So now we're coming ourselves, and we're going to ask a question. So they bring a lawyer. Matthew calls him a lawyer. Mark, in Luke's account, call him a scribe because that's what he is. He's an expert in the Old Testament law. In fact, I would, I would say to you, this was probably the leading expert on the Old Testament law. So he's going to come up with a question, and here's his question. Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Now, one of the reasons they asked that question is they had kind of got to the point where they thought, we can't keep all the laws, so just give us a handful. In fact, if you could just give us one, maybe by keeping that law, we could keep the rest of it. The truth of the matter is they were pretty close to accurate, and I'll explain that in a minute. The Pharisees had developed 613 laws. Now, how many laws are there in the Ten Commandments? Good answer. There's ten. Now, there's some other laws throughout the Old Testament, but the Pharisees had added laws. And that's what Jesus said. You're piling this weight on people who can't bear it. We find out in the New Testament, the whole purpose of the law was to indicate we need a Savior because we can't keep the law. Has anybody kept the law perfectly? One person. Who's that? Good answer. But none of the rest of us have. But they had 613 laws. In fact, it's kind of interesting. They had 613 laws. 248 of them were affirmative laws. 365, one for every day of the year, were negative laws. Those were the thou shalt not laws. So way more don't do this than there was do this. So they come with these 613 laws, a lot of them negative, some of them positive. And they ask Jesus, Boil it down for us. What's the greatest commandment? And I love His answer. He quotes for them. The first part is a quote out of Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. It's part of the Shema. This was something, if you were a faithful Jew, you quoted this prayer twice a day. And so He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And Mark and Luke also record this, and they add the word strength as well, which is also in Deuteronomy. But Jesus simply says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. They believed that that was the seat of thoughts and feelings, the core of your body. You shall love the Lord your God with all your soul, which was the word for breath or spirit. It's the closest to emotion. You shall love the Lord your God with all your mind, literally deep thought, intention, determination. So genuine love for the Lord is intelligent, feeling, and willing. Hear me. That's how God loves you. It's intentional. It's thoughtful. It's by definition, it's His will. That's how God loves you. And then He says the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, Love God, love your neighbor. Could I tell you, if we would keep those two laws, we wouldn't need any other laws. Go to the Ten Commandments. The first four have to do with loving God, taking His name in vain, honoring Him, honoring the Sabbath, one God. The rest of them deal with how we treat our neighbors, lying and adultery and stealing and coveting. Well, if you loved genuinely loved God, and we don't just mean the kind of love that we say we love French fries. This meant an intention. This meant unconditional. This meant with every fiber of my being. I don't love french fries that much. I mean, I love them, just not that much. But it's that word agape. It's the kind of love that God has for us. And it's why God sent His Son to die for us. If we really loved God like that, we wouldn't have a hard time keeping the law. In fact, if we really love God like that, we wouldn't have a hard time loving our neighbor who's also created in the image of God, and God loves them. So how are we doing with that? I'll boil all of those down to simply this. Do you love God with every fiber of your being? I've shared this story before, but it hit me this week. I want to share it again, because most of you have never heard it. When I was in the eighth grade, I went to church. I was in Macon, Georgia. I went to Sunday school, which was something I normally did on Sunday morning. And we had a substitute teacher because our regular teacher wasn't there. In fact, our class in eighth grade was big enough that we had two guy teachers and two girls teachers. And they separated the guys and the girls in eighth grade. And neither one of the guys teachers got there because typically if one of the guys teachers didn't show up, they just put all the guys in one room and let the other guy teacher teach all the guys. Well, if you've ever taught eighth grade boys, you know, some Sundays you need a break. So neither one of them showed up, so they split the girls' teachers up. All the girls went in one room, and one of the girls' teachers taught them. The other girl teacher came and taught us. Her name was Jody. She was home from college, and she was pretty. And she had our attention. I can tell you, there are a lot of times I get to church and my parents would say, how was Sunday school? Great. What y'all talk about? I'd make something up, because I don't remember. Typically, I wasn't even awake. I th- we, Jesus. That's what we talked about, Jesus. Well, Jody came in, and I don't know what the class was, because honestly, normally our teacher read to us out of the book, out of the quarterly. And it was boring, and we were doing other things and making noises and looking out the window and throwing stuff. But Jody comes in, and we're like, we kind of like this. She asked this question. She said, guys, what's the most important thing in your life? And I started thinking about that. She had my attention. Because normally on Sunday I wasn't paying attention, but somehow God got my attention through her and that question that day. And I started thinking, what is the most important thing in my life? What is it I spend most of my time thinking about, talking about, and doing? Well, in the eighth grade, the answer was right there. It was golf. It wasn't God. It started with a G, but it was a little G. Golf. I thought about that. I played golf every day that summer. My dad worked near the golf course. He would drop me and my brother off, and we, we were there from about 7.30 in the morning until 5.30 in the afternoon. Brought our lunch, played golf, looked for golf balls, putted, practiced, all that kind of stuff. I remember that year at Easter Sunday, going to the sunrise service, smelling fresh cut grass and thinking the shoes I had on If I could put some spikes in these. I mean, they're talking about Jesus being raised from the dead. And I'm up here thinking, that's about an eight iron. Because that's what controlled my thinking back then. And then Jody did something rude. She actually looked at the person on her left and expected an answer. She said, well, how about it? What's the most important thing in your life? Guess who was sitting on her left? See, I didn't have the benefit of hearing anybody else's answer. When I go to the restaurant, I kind of like hearing other people order it kind of helps me with my order i might think oh, i didn't even see that on the menu she looked at me and she said robert what's the most important thing in your life so i just tried something i didn't usually try back then i just told the truth i said golf she didn't comment she just went to the next guy she said rick what's the most important thing in your life rick was one of my best friends i knew what rick's answer should be rick played baseball went on to play college baseball in louisiana if you spent 15 minutes with Rick, the subject of baseball was going to come up. For some reason, he's going to come up. She said, Rick, what's the most important thing in your life? Guess what Rick said? Jesus. I thought, here I have stuck my neck out on the line, and you're giving me Jesus. You're a liar. I didn't say anything. She went to the next guy. His name was Clay. Clay was about six feet five in the 8th grade, played tennis. If you were 15 minutes around Clay, he's going to tell you, the most important thing in my life is tennis. It's all he ever did. It's all he ever talked about. Clay, what's the most important thing in your life? Jesus. (laughs) I have been hung out to dry. They have stabbed me in the back. And I'm just twisting in the wind over there. But it got my attention. Because, see, I had professed faith in Jesus Christ. But the most important thing in my life wasn't God. There's a lot of other things. And God used that to get my attention. I don't know what he did in Rick's life or Clay's life or anybody else in the room that morning because there was more that answered the question the same way everybody else answered it, Jesus. So when Jesus is asked the question, what's the greatest commandment, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Folks, that means more than just a Sunday school answer. That means it has impacted your life to the place where it's the most important thing in your life. Everything else pales in comparison. In fact, everything else revolves around that. Jesus is the most important thing. So i got a question for you this morning. What's the most important thing in your life? And I'm not going to pull a Jody. But I hope that God is impressing upon your heart right now. What's the answer to that? And if the answer is not God, then I'm not here to shame you. But if the answer is not God, then change the answer. Because i got to tell you something. Golf's going to flee. <laughs> You're not going to spend eternity in heaven because you played golf. In fact, the big question is, is there such a thing as golf in heaven? I've heard people say, well, I absolutely can't be because there's no pain in heaven. But it talks about the gates of heaven being open and they never close because it never gets dark. So something's out there. I think we might be fishing in heaven. Might be playing golf. I don't know. I mean, does that mean every hole's a hole in one? I don't know. But I can tell you this. Golf didn't get me closer to God. It was getting me further away from God. In fact, that year the youth group went off on a retreat to Atlanta. I grew up in Macon, Georgia. And I didn't go. I stayed home to play golf. And while they were gone, I had a hole in one. And my youth minister came back and said, we really missed you on the retreat. And I said, well, obviously it was God's will for me to stay here. (laughs) Why? Well, because I got a hole in one. He should have slapped me. (laughs) But that's the truth. No, it wasn't God's will for me to stay there. (laughs) But I did get a hole in one. So what's the most important thing in your life? And then he says, on these two depend the whole law and the prophets. Meaning it really all comes down to that. And then he finally asked them a question. And I'll do this quickly. In both answering their question and asking the question he's about to ask, he brings clarity. So he asked them, who's... What do you think about the Christ, literally the Messiah? What do you think about the anointed one, the Messiah, who is coming to fulfill the Old Testament prophecy? They knew what he was talking about. A couple days earlier, the crowd had cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, the Son of David. And so he said, what do you know about the Messiah? They said, well, he's the Son of David. But then Jesus asked them a question they couldn't answer, and that is, then how is it, That if he's only the son of David, you're only stressing his humanity. Yes, he is part of the lineage of David. But if you're only stressing his humanity, why then in Psalms 110, verse 1, does David call him my Lord? And I I love the end of this passage. Nobody was able to answer his question, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask another question. I close with this. What do you think about the Messiah? Is He your Lord? Because the word Lord means supreme in authority. It means controller. I've heard a lot of testimonies from teenagers that say, you know, I got saved at this age, but when I was this age, I made Him Lord. Let me tell you something. You don't make Him Lord. He is Lord. Acts chapter 2 says that God has made Him both Savior and Lord. Now understand the testimony. I understand that you didn't understand lordship. But understand something. Jesus is either Lord of all or not Lord at all. So really those two questions are kind of tied together. What's the most important thing in your life? And is Jesus your Lord? Because if He's the most important thing in your life, He's your Lord. And if He's your Lord, He'll be the most important thing in your life. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Father, Thank you for the truth of your word. And God, would you penetrate our heart with that question? God, it's not about how religious we are and whether we're at church on Sunday. But what difference has Jesus made in our life? Do we love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, strength, every fiber of our being? And is he truly Lord? God, I pray that that question would resonate in our heart and our mind today. And I pray the answer ultimately be, oh yes. Oh yes, He's my Lord. We pray this in Christ's name.